0: Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fuganaga. Thanks for spending part of your day or night with us. We're posting every week new podcasts uh, for the foreseeable future, so be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you enjoy it, please leave us a five-star review and maybe leave a nice comment so we know the show is helpful to you in your writer's journey. Um, but first, the show. Now, today on the podcast, we've got uh, a literary manager who represents writers and directors for film and television. He got his start working at Jeff Berg's now defunct talent agency, Resolution, Uh, not his fault. Uh, He later moved on to CAA and then boutique management company, Rit Large, continuing his work in literary representation. After a stop at Netflix, where he worked in original programming, he teamed up with Gavin Dorman and together they started their own management company, Schemers Entertainment, in 2018. He's a Maryland Terrapin and Florida Gator, having graduated both schools and now he's here. He is Daniel Sico. Thanks for coming on, Daniel. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Um, first off, I know about your work background, but I don't know much about you, Daniel Sico, uh, in terms of your background, uh, where you came from, things like that. So maybe you can give us a little bit of insight into, you know, your history, your background. Where'd you come from? How did you get to LA? That kind of stuff. Sure. I grew up
1: in northern New Jersey, uh, right outside New York City. I, like I said, uh, went to the University of Maryland for undergrad. Uh, thought that I was going to go to law school. I worked for the U.S. Attorney's Office, I worked for the National Archives, I worked for a state senator, you know, definitely on that path towards doing something with law. My senior year, I became a personal assistant of sorts, uh, technically a clubhouse attendant working for the Baltimore Orioles baseball team. Wow. Really cool experience. Um, I would say my biggest responsibility was when a a good team would come into town, like say the New York Yankees. Right. Uh, And just to give some context, this was the 2008 season. I'd have to go to the visiting clubhouse. Uh, I'd bring a whole bucket of brand new official baseballs. And I'd have to go up to players like Derek Jeter and Mm -hmm. be like, Hey, uh, Hey Derek, uh, Brian Roberts would love an autograph. And I'd always slip in an extra ball for myself. So pretty extensive autograph collection. Um, It was that experience that made me think about my path. I had applied to law school, Teach for America, the Peace Corps, um, but also journalism grad school. Um, It was between Columbia and Florida. Obviously, Columbia has a bit more of a prestigious reputation, but this was 2008. Tim Tebow was the quarterback at Florida, and I was gonna do sports journalism. So it it made sense to be at a place where the football program and the basketball program were pretty prolific, um, and it worked out well. football team won the national championship my first year there. I started a soccer site covering the U.S. men's national team. And again, this was over 10 years ago. Soccer, not even a huge deal to this day, was really nothing at that point. Um, So within a matter of months, I got press credentialed by U.S. soccer. Wow. It was cool. Uh, It was a really good experience. I built out a team of 10 writers, um, sent writers to the World Cup, 2010 2014 I actually would have gone to russia myself in 2018 but the united states didn't qualify for the first time i think in my lifetime i graduate grad school i moved to new orleans i did a program called teach for america i was a special education teacher at a charter school was the lowest performing academic school in the city it was the hardest thing i've ever done Mm -hmm. hands down and you know i've worked at caa so you can only imagine (laughs) right uh do that for about two years resume my writing career after that beyond soccer i covered major league baseball i covered the nba 2013 i got sick i was diagnosed with cancer i had stage four non-hodgkin's lymphoma wow yeah um went through chemo radiation surgery spent the majority of my time living at the hospital to undergo treatments Very fortunately got better, Uh, got a clean bill of health. July 2013, within a month I told my mom that I was moving to Los Angeles. That was a Sunday, by Wednesday I'd packed up my car and started driving cross country from New Jersey, stopping in Indianapolis, Tulsa, Albuquerque and making it to LA by that Saturday. No no plans whatsoever, just beyond a friend saying, hey, you'd make a really good literary manager. And I was like, what's that?
0: Well, your friend was was right. Yeah, I mean, he
1: was. crazy. And so, you know, it, it kind of led to me being this 27-year-old intern and kind of working my way from there. And like you said, ending up at Resolution, that being my first paid job in the industry. Did he explain at the time why he thought you would be a great literary manager? Yeah, he did. He, he kind of alluded to the idea that while I was a good writer in terms of the output uh, I had as a sports journalist my best skill set was as an editor, hmm. the idea of making other writers better, kind of being the coach and the coach player relationship, um, you know, seeing what makes something good and being able to get the best out of that writer to kind of get it to that point. And even though editing a long form piece about baseball is very different than working on a a pilot or a feature, he was right, it, it does have some overlap, um, I think, not having gone to film school, it forced me to read thousands of scripts, do as much coverage as possible, to kind of put me in a different mindset that maybe kind of speaks to the differences between journalism and writing for film or television.
0: Right, right. Um, now, I wanted to talk about uh, how you got your actual start in the industry. Like, what was your first job and how did you manage to get that job
1: sure so the friend that got me to move out here Mm -hmm. said hey i have one relationship with one person of note let me tell him your story the this idea of this guy that just went through cancer and see if that can you know have this emotional appeal to him it set me up with an interview i met with daniel vang at bender spank which is now called good fear Uh, daniel liked me or i guilted him enough into him taking me on as an unpaid intern. He asked me what other internships I was applying to. And I gave him a list of names just based off things I had found on the UTA job list. Mm -hmm. And Daniel's like, no, like I I think I'm going to make a phone call to a friend. And he called Gavin Dorman, my now business partner. Mm -hmm. And Gavin at that point was a CE at Vertigo Entertainment on the Warner Brothers lot. And so Daniel lined up this interview for me with Gavin. Gavin thinks that I showed up in a three-piece suit. That's <laughs> definitely not true. And it I met was with a Ga- tuxedo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um yeah, so I met with Gavin, landed the internship there, did those two internships For the fall of 2013. Um, From there, uh, JC Spink, who is now deceased, Mm -hmm. um, he uh, set me up at all the agencies. He set up a whole bunch of meetings to meet with HR, to meet with actually even a TV lit partner at WME. Um, And the first place to offer me a job was Resolution. Mm -hmm. Um, WME was like, you know, check back in. You know, we could probably get you in within three months. And I was like, I'm not young. I'm not making any money. I'm running out of savings. So I took the resolution job right, because right, I could start that Monday. Um, so yeah, my first official paid job in the industry was working in the mailroom at resolution. Hmm. It was, it was an interesting experience. Um, there's only two people in the mailroom at Resolution. Uh, the other guy that I was with is now an executive at a major production company. So it's kind of nice to see the people that I came up with really, you know, kind of advance in their own careers. Um, You know, I didn't really know much about the industry at that point. I never really seen it from that vantage point. Um, It wasn't like we were seeing a list people coming in and signing, Uh, you know, you'd see some familiar names, some familiar faces, but more retreads than anything, at least um, maybe on the talent side. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's definitely some viable writers and directors there. Um, And I think a lot of the agents have moved on and are doing well in in their own way. Um, But yeah, it was a learning experience for sure.
0: Right. Now, is the friend who suggested you come out and be a lit manager and who generously actually introduced you to a few people, was he a writer and wanting you to represent him or he was just a friend? So we had gone to
1: Maryland together. We were in the same fraternity. Uh, The first time we met, he actually tackled me and we became friends because of that. So I met him when I was 18. He was 19. uh, Just for context, I'm 33 now, so I've known him for you know significant portion of my life um so he went to usc to get his mfa after maryland uh so he was a working writer director producer didn't have representation but i think beyond just being a friend he knew that if i was someone that could make some moves within the industry that i could probably be helpful for him in terms of advancing his career right um and he is now a working writer director with representation
0: right oh well good um and in terms of literary representation i know your friend suggested you do it and you've gone through that whole uh, uh gauntlet of working at cia you know big agency working at resolution which was a mid agency it wasn't sure. small at all um jeff berg started it from icm um and then all the way down through you know to uh, management companies like writ large which is a boutique but there are you know some prominent managers and clients there uh But then you also, I read, worked at Netflix and programming, and so you've done other things as well. What is it about representation that you said, you know what, this is for me, other than, you know, like you said, you had mentioned that you enjoyed the sort of editing, the story development part of it. But, you know, there's obviously a lot of other things that go into being a manager. Why did it seem like that was a good fit, fit, uh, you know, good enough that you continue to do it to this day?
1: I thought the ceiling was high for what I could be. Um, If I think about talent representation, I could have just been a guy, or if I was a development exec, just you know, someone existing. I don't necessarily know if I had the chops to be great at any of those things. And maybe it's this just kind of like blind confidence, but my, my thought process was, I wanna become a literary manager because I think the ceiling is whatever I put into it. Um, you know, not having gone to film school, it was definitely a learning experience. You know if resolution was the cautionary tale of what not to do caa was my wharton business school or my usc film school if you will i think for me i love to read i'm a fast reader it's something i'm passionate about uh in terms of my taste i'm not someone that gravitates towards things that do significantly well at the box office for me it was always the scripts that were super well written that really evoked the right emotional response and that's kind of why I would watch a film. Uh, I'm definitely someone that's going to watch a film on a Tuesday night rather than binge watch a TV show. So I think for me, the idea of a literary manager was control your own destiny, really be super hands-on, be able to impact the creative process, but also pull from my business sensibilities, uh, the idea of being a coach versus a player. Um, This idea that I could shape people's lives in a meaningful way you know go from discussing ideas what to do or also what not to do and seeing it all the way to fruition in terms of being able to go to the theater and, and watch a film that I had some small part in I think that's satisfying um, let me be clear there are definitely easier ways to make money than being a literary manager sure. I, I'm there are plenty of literary managers that do this but I work seven days a week and not just on my own client stuff but doing consulting stuff just to be able to pay the bills sure and i mean looking for new clients oh for sure that whole thing for sure
0: you know uh so what okay now you are partnered with gavin dorman at schemers Mm -hmm. how did this come about
1: sure so gavin leaves vertigo winter of 2014 okay he starts schemers kind of out of a spare bedroom in his house Mm -hmm. mostly as a production company. Um, The idea of it being a management company kind of came to fruition um, when he kind of had this idea of do a micro packaging model, develop writers, develop directors, have a script that one of his writers writes, put one of his directors on it, develop it in house, and then go to the financiers that he has relationships with. Mm -hmm. So he did this on his own for years. I didn't come on board until summer of 2018. Um, Gavin and I, after the internship, we actually lived together for two years. Um, So we always stayed in touch. He always tried to get me to join up with him. It just never seemed like the right fit. I think I had to experience a little bit more before really taking that dive into something that's really a startup, um, if you think about it. So Gavin has the production company, the management side. Gavin's aspirations are really as a producer, uh, you know, he's done some small things, uh, five million and under, mostly genre stuff, but he did have a film in competition at Sundance last year that's like a mid-century coming of age drama. So I think for him, it's find good scripts, find good material, develop it in a meaningful way. Um, But he wanted someone to come on board to run the management side. Again, I don't really have aspirations of being a producer in the sense that, again, maybe I could be a decent producer, but I want to be a great manager. Sure. So the way our setup works is I run the management side, Gavin runs the production side, but Gavin also oversees the directors, whereas my day-to-day is really developing, discovering, and incubating our writers in the hopes of making them viable clients.
0: Sure. Um, And about how many clients do you guys have at Skimmer?
1: Sure. So between the two of us... I would say it's about thirty, thirty-five. That's not bad. It's a good mix. Yeah. Wow. It's a mix of writers and directors for film and TV. We're definitely heavier on the feature side, but I would say that this year, or maybe the end of 2019, we made the conscious decision definitely take on more TV clients, be mindful of staffing opportunities, and really see how we can be balanced
0: to kind of cover both sides of the industry. Mm -hmm. And you had you just mentioned staffing opportunities because I know at least at the time of this recording, uh, the WGATA sort of dispute is still going on, although a couple agencies have recently broke ranks with APA and Gersh joining Verve and there's another agency that was uh, Abrams, Mm -hmm. um, as well as a bunch of smaller agencies, uh, to sign the WGA Code of Conduct so they can actually represent writers again. For a long time, there were few, if any, agents. Most writers, had managers or lawyers or nothing. Um, so for you guys, um, I know you're sort of heavier on the feature side, but for the TV on the TV side, what was that? What was staffing like for you? Sure. So I would say
1: it's going to be this upcoming staffing season. That's really going to be the push that we're, we're going for. Um, in terms of, how the WGA has affected us. I I would say a lot of WGA writers have been reaching out Mm -hmm. and saying, Hey, I used to be here. I'm looking for a manager. I want someone that's hands on. And it's been interesting. Um, I haven't really engaged on a meaningful level with many or any of the WGA writers that have reached out, but it's it's kind of cool to see what's out there to see what people have done i want to feel that i can be helpful to these people i'm not going to just collect clients for the sake of saying oh they're in the wga which is great but if they haven't worked in 10 years i don't know if i can be helpful especially as i'm just kind of learning the tv landscape in in the most meaningful way sure so i think for me um you know, I, I try to be honest with people. If they send me a query, especially if they, they're kind of designating themselves as a WGA writer, you know, if they're doing half-hour comedies, I'm probably not your guy, and I want them right. to know it's not really a reflection of them. It's just I feel like I'd be disingenuous just taking them on for the sake of, oh, well, this person's been on shows X, Y, and Z, kind of boosts my credibility, but if I can't help them, if I can't get them staffed on a show or help them sell a project, I don't think that's fair, and I, I don't want to be that person.
0: Right. Um, so, what sort of cli- like what would be a, a dream client? Not in talking about you know the WGA side, but let's say you know a pre-WGA writer. Like when they send you that query email, uh, we dream like what would they have? Like a dream client. How many pieces of material would they have? You know their background, where would they live, that kind of thing.
1: Sure, I think it's it's different across the board if there's certain qualities that always matter to me and sure. being undeniable on the page in terms of what you can do as a writer is a great starting point i think that gets the conversation rolling i want to get a sense of who they are as a person i'd like to think that the clients that i have on my list are people that i'd want to have my wife meet you know not necessarily be friends per se but know that we could go out to dinner and it'd be a fun time and they wouldn't do something silly or stupid. Right. Um, that, that means something to me. I've been at other companies where there have been clients that have maybe made a lot of money and so bad behaviors have been pushed under the rug. And that's difficult, especially if, it, you know, that money allows a company to grow it's tough to kind of cut ties with someone like that. I, I think for me, as we build up the company, it's definitely something that we're mindful of in terms of the type of people that we bring on. Right. Um, you know, going beyond just my own dealings, it's when I set them up to meet with producers or executives. I want the calls to be, hey, you know, obviously, so and so is a great writer, but I really just enjoyed meeting with them. They're a really cool person, someone that I want to have a, a beer with. I think that builds great credibility for a company. I think it just makes things easier. And, you know, if all things are equal in terms of talent, that person that's good in the room might get the opportunity over someone that's a little bit more abrasive.
0: Yeah, I mean, we were talking before we went on the air um, about sort of uh, burning bridges and how personality oftentimes trumps the, the level of writing not to say that you can be a complete hack and the night a really nice person and 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 work a ton although you know there's a possibility I guess any you know it's all subjective but you're gonna have a much easier time getting work finding work being a really good human being a decent person you know responsible and, and and just likable and agreeable who is a good writer versus somebody who is a amazing writer who is difficult to work with, or unpleasant to be around, or not, you know, doesn't show any uh, any grace or any is not grateful for anything. And even if that brilliant writer who has sort of these behavioral question marks uh, succeeds, the moment you fail is the you know, or the moment your next film doesn't do well, you have a bomb per se. Is the moment everyone cuts ties with you because right. you're only as good as your last film. Whereas somebody who you know, everybody really likes and is hoping for you and rooting for you because you're a good human being, you're a decent person. You know, you have a bomb. It's like, okay, well, they still were rooting for you and they still want you to succeed and you'll get a second opportunity or a third opportunity. Whereas if you have a bad, bad attitude, you may not get that second chance.
1: Oh, yeah. That benefit of the doubt, it speaks to someone's character. You're right. not going to get it if you're not the type of person that people want to be around. So, yeah, going back to your original question, this idea of, you know, what's the ideal client. Obviously, the talent, obviously, the type of person that they are. And I think diving a little bit deeper into what that really looks like, you know, being able to take notes, it's not easy. Some people get very defensive, they take it as a personal attack. Mm -hmm. And I think I try to convey to my clients that, sure, maybe I'm a little aggressive, but it's for the sake of the project, it's for the sake of being successful. It's also this. For the sake of what the stakes are in the idea that if we don't push it far enough, there's going to be someone else out there that beats us right um, so I think you know it's not about me criticizing someone or even criticizing the project it's how do we work together as a team to make something better so that we can put ourselves in the best position to succeed that's really it. Um, so I think you know the good attitude, coachability, the soft skills it's a little bit of everything. I think people just think sometimes it's oh, just sign the, the most talented person ever. I can't vibe and connect with them on an emotional level. And I'm not saying that I try to be friends with my clients, but I think we spend a lot of time with our clients. It it has to be a meaningful relationship on some level. I don't want to look at my phone, see an incoming call and hit decline. That's not the (laughs) kind of person uh, that makes sense as a schemer's client. I I think I want to get excited. I want to you know, celebrate the wins and also be able to, you know, overcome the setbacks together as a team. Um, Me serving as a coach and our writers and directors serving as the players. I think that's the right synergistic relationship to be successful.
0: Now, are you looking for, again, mentioning schemers, are you looking for clients specifically that sort of fit the mold of schemers? You know, again, talking about the, the types of films that you and Gavin produce, um, or are you just looking for good writers, meaning good both on the page and in person, just good writers, and you'll deal with the rest later? I think we're looking for both. Okay. I think sometimes
1: we'll find clients that were maybe more interested in the project than anything else, and I think taking them on as, as clients and then thinking, you know, okay, whatever we do after the fact is great, but let's make this project with them. Um, it might be something that's appropriate for our directors, um, but also there's times where writers have projects that don't make sense for the production side. I'm personally more interested in those types of clients. Um, I think Gavin is more of the genre guy. I think he's done a great job in terms of teaching me how those types of projects need to be structured, what they look like, the things that I need to be looking for when I'm reading that material. So he's been a really great teacher in that respect. What do I gravitate towards? Uh, probably more awards fair, character driven, biopic type dramas, which, you know, would probably be a lot easier if I still worked at CAA, but sure. we had some success uh, selling a few projects that fit in that space last year.
0: Um, talking about uh, awards, a lot of writers ask, uh, you know, in a query, does it matter if I put, you know, we won such and such or, you know a finalist for such and such or a semi-finalist for such and such uh, festival, you know, screenwriting competition or fellowship or whatever it happens to be. Uh, is that something that you encourage? And and which ones do you follow? Which ones are, which ones would make a difference? Absolutely. In a queer?
1: I, I think there's, a few different competitions or fellowship type programs where if you are getting recognition at the semi-finalists or above level, it's definitely something that catches my attention. Um, for me, the Austin film festival, the nickel competition, and then the end of the year blacklist, mm-hmm. I would say those are the big three that I really consider in a meaningful way. Uh, not so much the idea of, Oh, I'm trying to be the guy that everyone wants to sign. But if my clients are, up-and-coming writers. I encourage them to apply to those things. Um, We'll champion writers for the blacklist, campaign on their behalf. Um, I think those are all good springboards for careers in terms of you can get recognized, you can get your projects optioned or sold, and you can really move forward uh, as a working writer in Hollywood. So I think in terms of the queries that I receive, look, the validation of being a second rounder, um, a quarter finalist, that's great. I don't think that for me it's something that I'm going to say, oh, oh, okay, now I'm definitely excited about this. Look, like again, that's validation that you're on the right path. It doesn't necessarily say to me that you're ready to be signed. That being said, we've definitely signed people that have had projects at that level and they've gone on to be successful. Um, I would just say if I'm going through a stack of maybe a hundred submissions over the course of a week. If someone was a finalist for nickel, that's definitely gonna get my attention in a way that maybe a lesser distinction won't.
0: Right. Um, And going back to queries, uh, does, what should and should not go in a query? We always like to ask that and we get varied answers, but they're usually pretty succinct. Uh, what, What should and should not go in a query? You'd be
1: surprised how many writers kind of sabotage themselves just off of the lack of attention to detail. I got one two weeks ago where they called me Justin, and I knew who they meant the letter for, but it's just like you copy it and paste it a little too fast. Look, don't go on my IMDb page and find some up-and-coming client and say that you love them. That's a little disingenuine. I think if you find out that I'm into sports and you ask me a sports-related question within a query, which someone did, they asked me who I... Uh, was rooting for for the Super Bowl that caught my attention I think they took a little bit of time to really give some thought Um, but you know keep it to the point give me a little sense of who you are beyond just being a writer I would say that I gravitate towards people that have had um, a life beyond just writing so you know if you tell me that you were a teacher great like I can relate to that Um, but keep it maybe two paragraphs nothing crazy I, I don't think like you need to give me a laundry list of the 50 projects that you had because guess what all 50 are not going to be good i'd like people to champion the one or two or three things that they really believe in and and just give me the opportunity to say yes or no i try to get back to 95 to 100 percent of the queries that i respond to uh that i receive um but don't submit the project without me acknowledging it first i just think that you know, give me give me a sense of what you have to offer and I'll tell you right away if it's for me or not. I can tell right off the log line if it's a project that I could be helpful on and you know, maybe it's just something that someone else is better suited for.
0: Is there any query that you've received in the past that sort of caught you off guard in a good way, that sort of stood out, I should say, and if so, what was it about that query that just sort of made it stand out?
1: I've started to really boost my social media game. Mm-hmm. I've had Twitter for, I don't know, 12 years. But in the last couple of months, I noticed some of my clients really engaging with the writer community in a meaningful way and kind of asked for advice in terms of, hey, can I kind of get into this in a way that maybe I can expose myself to writers that I never would have read before? Um, and it gave me some pointers and I've definitely been mindful of it. And I even set up a competition to, to meet with a few different writers. and. I've, I followed up on that, and it seems to you know be working pretty well. Um, one of the submissions that I received, one of the queries that I received, the writer kind of took note of what I had been doing on Twitter, and she had mentioned something specific that I said, and she kind of tied it to her own career, and um, I, I think it served in some way as inspiration not to pat myself on the back, but it gave me validation that using what little platform I have on Twitter that people were listening, people were kind of using it as motivation and it at least struck this one writer as something meaningful. So I definitely gave special attention to that submission and I, I didn't give like significant notes um, when I ultimately passed on the project, uh, but I definitely was a little bit more engaged in terms of you know, giving it its due diligence and providing some feedback when I did respond to the writer.
0: Right, and that's one of the biggest pieces of advice we can give tying into your previous comment about getting an email for Justin, a query for Justin is you know the whole personalizing the query to the person that you're querying first by getting their name correct and not a justin or to whom it may concern kind of thing and if you can add in a detail like you like sports or something like that or if you had a recent sale congratulations on your recent sale or we've had a number of managers come back on the podcast saying that they've you know that people will say oh i heard you on the, pod, the scripts and Scribes podcast and I really thought you sounded cool or whatever, if you can personalize it to show that you've actually done a little bit of research, that you are actually not just shotgunning your query out to 500 people randomly, but you are targeting people that you believe are could help you and, and are uh, somebody that you want to work with, that will get you much further than to whom it may concern. Uh, uh,
1: just to add on to that, yeah. I also wouldn't call me right if you haven't heard back. Sure, uh, that happened yesterday. Yes, and so I responded via email after I saw the call and knew who it was because it wasn't the first time they had called me. I was like, "Hey, like, saw you called. Uh, it, it's a pass. Thanks." Right. Like, uh, I don't know if it's because that person maybe. I'd been a development exec but not necessarily during my time I just think it's a little too forward it's a little bit unnecessary I wouldn't say that I'm phone phobic but I definitely talk less on the phone than maybe some of my peers um, I think it's just Can I maximize my time and I don't necessarily need to have an hour long conversation with someone? Um, it's trying to get as much work done as possible. So I think, you know, for the sake of a query, keep it to email. You can certainly follow up, but probably not five emails in one week, which someone else had done. Um, here's maybe the worst thing someone has has done and it, it negatively impacted me. And I know that's selfish to say, but like your image is your image. Someone sent a query to me and then CC'd or BCC'd 500 other people. And so I got a response from managers and producers being like, what is your client doing? That guy wasn't my client. Right. That that person put my name in the two uh, line and it just kind of gave the optics that I was their client. When in reality, he should have just sent it to himself and then BCC'd everyone else. Or just... Done individual emails. Uh, I actually had to call the guy and explain to him, hey, this is wrong. This is what you should be doing. And it finally stopped.
0: Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've heard the whole do not call uh, unless requested or unless you initiate the call Absolutely. You know, thing from multiple managers. That's something you, you know, and I, I've heard writers say, but I'm trying to be aggressive. And that's fine. But understand that oftentimes that can also burn you. Like, you you may find that one manager was like okay sure i happen to be not doing anything i'm in my car whatever you're calling me i'll talk to you for five minutes you can pitch me and it's better than sending a query but the other nine are going to block your number or remember you and not want to read you or just pass immediately without looking at your stuff so keep that in mind that most managers do not want you to call them on a query or you know call them for a reason. And I've actually had managers say that they've had clients or potential clients, not even clients. They're not clients. Their potential clients show up to their office just unannounced to get the script read, like that kind of stuff.
1: This is the one time where having an office in Pasadena is actually a benefit. <laughs> um,
0: so, uh, okay. I wanted to go into, you've worked at CAA. And you've worked obviously at management company like RIT Large um, and Resolution, also a man, an agency, and now with Schemers, a management company. So you've worked with both. Why should a pre WGA writer seek out a manager before an agent? Maybe you can explain that. To yeah, me it's me a great writer.
1: question. It's a question I get a lot. Right. I've seen it from both sides. I think a good agent is going to do a great job of selling your very finalized, ready to go, beautiful script. They're not really going to be involved in the creative process. I did work for an agent at CA that did read, that did give notes, but a lot of the hand holding through the creative process was predicated on the manager being able to do that. Um, I think there are managers that are really just agents in casual clothing that maybe don't do so much in the way of development, Um, script notes, back and forth, creative sessions that are meaningful to get the best product possible. But for me, kind of going back to the why become a literary manager, I like the creative process. I like the idea of making something great. And so a good literary manager is gonna be involved from the beginning telling you why an idea works or why an idea needs further revision, going back and forth, outlines, treatments, draft after draft really just being there to get the best out of you to put the script in the position that if there's an agent on the team that they read it they believe in it and they have a vision for where it can go who can be attached and why it can sell so that's really everyone playing their part in a meaningful way not all of my clients have agents most of them don't i'd like to think that because of my agency experience i can wear both hats it makes for a very time-consuming uh, career, but I like that. I like the idea that I can be involved on the manager side and then also play the role of the agent. Fortunately we have um, an entertainment lawyer to handle the contract stuff. But to me, that's the most exciting thing. Yes, it's great to develop. It's fun to sell too. Um, but when there are agents, managers and clients involved on one team, it's the manager doing the development it's the agent doing the selling that's really how it should be that's how i've seen people be the most successful
0: right right um uh, this question gets asked all the time and i'm sure and there's there's different answers from different reps uh but i wanted to get your take on it how much material like ready to go or you know close to ready to go out obviously that would determine you know if it's ready to go out with, you know based on yours and the client agreeing it's ready ready and the, possibly the agent if there is one uh, but you know really solid material not like you know i've written 50 things and you know there are, hey read them all and, and and let's do something but literally how many really solid pieces of work should a client a potential client have or do you like to see a potential client have is it just the one or is it how many
1: i've signed clients off of one piece of material ideally if they have two to three that's amazing realistically i don't expect to sign someone off of something that i can turn around and immediately sell it just needs to be strong enough that i believe that they're a talented writer someone that i can work with and someone that has the capacity to replicate what i've seen but maybe even at a higher level now that they would have a manager as part of the team. For me, I think the bar is pretty high in terms of how much material I take out each year. Look, I I work at a boutique management company that people don't know how to pronounce, it's based in Pasadena. I I know my place in the Hollywood world. I have to send out material that's undeniable. I have to get people flipping the fuck out for what they've read from me. Otherwise, that connection dries up real fast. Mm -hmm. I can't rely on the, Know, if I were at, say, Anonymous Content or CAA, that I could send out shit, see what sticks, and no one's gonna stop talking to me because of the company that I work at. Sure. So I think that I truly have to believe that there's a meaningful path for a project. Maybe it's not necessarily selling. The like, goal, oh, yeah, uh, that that would be great. Um, but I think for an up and coming writer, if there's something that's so strong as a sample that it really gets whoever's receiving it super excited about them generate a meeting get to know them in a meaningful way and set them up maybe for an open writing assignment that's the bar like and even that sometimes i feel like i'm taking a risk because it's not actionable enough um but i want people to really feel like the stuff that i'm sending out is a super strong reflection of me and speaks to my taste and the quality of clients that we have at
0: schemers right how do you like a writer slash client, uh, manager relationship to work? Like, when do you find that your relationship with a writer works the best?
1: That's a great question. I think it looks different for everyone in terms of, if I look through my phone right now and kind of thought about each one of my clients, um, there are a few clients that I'll definitely text with, that I'll talk about personal things with, um, but I'd say that's maybe the exception. I think that's something that is earned rather than maybe um, the norm. Um, for me, it it's not necessarily about being friends, and I, I've said that, but I do think that I wanna be on the phone with them, I wanna feel comfortable, I wanna feel like I don't have to hold back, that I can give them the full version of myself, that knowing I can be critical, Really beat up a project, or kind of give them, you know, a kick in the ass if they need it, and that they'll respond in the right way, knowing that we each have each other's best interests at heart. That I'm fully committed to them, and they're fully committed to me. I, I think for me, a, an issue becomes if if a client treats this as a hobby, if right. it's a little whimsical, if you know, if they're wealthy or they're making a lot more money in some other job, and this is just something that they happen to be doing, and that if they fall short on a project, it doesn't eat at them. You know, for me, this is it. This is what I'm doing. It's a, It's not a job. It's not a career. It's a way of life. Everything I do, it, it's not secondary to my job, but it's in consideration of what I'm doing professionally. Um, sacrifices are made for sure. I'm fully and wholly committed to my company, to my clients, and I expect that of them. I, I want to feel like they're giving everything of themselves. They've left nothing on the table and they're they're doing what it takes to be undeniable as a writer.
0: Right. Right. Um, Someone asked me once and it just kind of stuck in my head. Although I, I sort of answered the best I could, but I want to get your take on it. Does a snail mail query, like an actual letter in the mail make more of an impact on you obviously it's something memorable because it doesn't probably happen a whole lot but does it you know make an impact is that something that you think is cool or is it just like why is this person wasting their postage and paper
1: i will say sending me a script in the mail is not great or even just a query letter i i don't want that i'd rather read something on the screen but i will say this the writers that have taken the time to write me a a thank you note or hey I really enjoyed that panel that you were on or hey thanks for taking 30 minutes to grab coffee with me I could send you a photo right now I have each one of those hanging up on a bulletin board in my office nice that means something to me I think that's the right going above and beyond to kind of express gratitude uh, to kind of say to me like yeah I really got something out of whatever it was that kind of tied me to them um, weirdly, I worked when I worked at Resolution, someone got like a devil statue in the mail that was for Danny Elfman. Huh. Um, so that kind of lingers in the back of my mind of why I don't want to get things in the mail that are really random. Right. Uh, I did hide it in an agent's office and she freaked out. So maybe there was some benefit to it.
0: <laughs> I remember when I worked at CAA, um, there was a story going around. I wasn't there at the time. But there was a story going around about somebody who had submitted a script in a box and it was about time travel and they'd attached a ticking clock onto it (laughs) and then put it in a box and sent it and they had to call the bomb squad. They thought it was a bomb. You get this box and it's ticking. Uh, but again, it turned out to be a script about time travel and the person put a ticking clock because, you know, the show, the ticking clock of the, you know, the protagonist trying to save the world kind of thing. And yeah, that person did not get signed.
1: I would have guessed that it was an assistant <laughs> just trying to get a half day.
0: Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> that would have been smart. Probably a, a little too smart. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, so yeah, nobody likes to receive those types of packages in the mail. Um so uh let 's see i I did get a listener question, which is sort of what you had talked about um, a little bit earlier about social media uh, from I think you saw it as well, but I, I maybe we can uh, talk about it for the listeners. Uh, it was from at Buckley stuff, and he asked uh, i 'm assuming it 's a he maybe it 's a she but at Buckley stuff asked. Uh, What's the role of social media in making connection versus a query? And you had talked a little bit about it, but maybe you can specifically go into, again, making a connection on social media.
1: I think there's a balance to be struck in in the sense that if I'm engaging with you on social media, it doesn't mean I'm your friend, doesn't mean that I'm going to sign you, doesn't mean I'm even interested in signing you. But I do think it goes beyond just a query because you are showing hopefully a genuine version of yourself maybe you have a photo maybe there's a link to your website it just it's somewhere in between meeting someone in person versus just hiding behind an email sure. so i think if you're carrying yourself in a way that reflects who you are in real life and you're polite and you engage me in a way and maybe we have some commonalities i think it's a way for me to get a sense of oh okay this is someone i could really see myself working with whereas the query letter doesn't necessarily do any of that. It maybe gives me a sense of what you've done as a writer, maybe a sense of your writing ability if you've sent me a script. Um, but I think that if you use social media appropriately, and it doesn't mean bombarding me with thousands of DMs, um, but maybe you're commenting on some of my tweets or maybe you've reached out to me on Instagram or Facebook. But uh, for me, I, I would prefer Twitter. It just seems like the best forum for for those types of conversations. I think it allows me to get a sense of who you are in a meaningful way beyond just your writing ability. And I think I have a better idea of whether we could be successful together. So yeah, I do think that Twitter specifically can be used to engage certain reps. I can really only speak for myself, but I've put myself out there. I've opened up my DMs as of two days ago so that writers could reach out and it feels like a more meaningful way to connect than just say a a query email.
0: Right, Um, and you had mentioned a writer who had queried you and asked you who you thought was going to win the Super Bowl. So, just putting it on record, who do you think is going to win the Super Bowl? The 49ers of San Francisco or the Chiefs of Kansas City?
1: I haven't made up my
0: mind. Yeah.
1: I would say if it's a shootout, meaning a high-scoring game, then the Chiefs win. But... I don't think it's going to be a high-scoring game because I think the 49ers' defense is exceptional, and if they show up and perform as they have in the past couple games, then I think the 49ers should take it. That being said, the best offensive player on the field is Patrick Mahomes, a quarterback for the Chiefs, but Bosa for the 49ers is exceptional on the defensive side. So I don't know. It's, it's going to be a great game. I think the Vegas odds are super close. Not that I bet on sports. Um, This is one of those super bowls where it's not one great team and one, Oh, how the fuck did they make it? Right. It's actually probably two of the top two teams from their respective conference. Uh, Maybe Ravens 49ers would have been what some people preferred, but I do think the chiefs have earned it. Uh, just coming back in the way that they have the last two games, um, it's just been really meaningful.
0: Right, right. And the Chiefs and the Ravens seem a little similar, and they both have mobile, athletic, super talented quarterbacks. And I don't know. Yeah, I'm, um, uh, my money's probably on the 49ers. Okay. But uh, not, not that I have anything against the Chiefs. I just – the way that the Niners have been winning games by running the ball – and I think Jimmy Garoppolo is a better quarterback than people. a lot of people give him credit for. I'm not saying he's, you know, Tom Brady. I think, obviously, Mahomes is, you know, a more athletic, better quarterback. I mean, last, you know, season MVP, you know, 50 touchdowns, 12 interception kind of quarterback. But he's a quality, capable quarterback. Yes. And I think they have a, an amazing offensive line. They have multiple running backs who can run 100 yards a game granted I think the Chiefs defense is pretty stout against the run they both have good defenses all in all uh and uh, you know I don't think the Niners have really been tested as much on in terms of like a mobile quarterback a super accurate mobile quarterback but all things being considered if you throw in a good running game with a solid offensive line and can wear down the clock and wear down the clock and wear down the clock you limit the opportunities that Pat Mahomes has and I think that's the great equalizer because you know it's not like garoppolo doesn't have weapons you know he's right. got one of the best tight ends in, in the league yeah. and he's again i think garoppolo is a good solid quarterback and you combine all that together you know uh, if you have a good offensive line a solid quarterback a good running game and a stout defense you're in every game you're in every game and they have been and, and the way they've been beating people like they beat the green bay packers twice by a total of what was it, 74 to 28, right? Combined, and the Chiefs lost to the the Packers, and they lost to the Packers at home, meaning in Kansas City. So you know the the, the matchups goes the other way as well, meaning the Chiefs beat the Ravens, uh, whereas the Niners lost to the Ravens, but the Niners lost to the Ravens, you know, in Baltimore. Kansas City won at home that's a good point so uh, you know uh, because as stout as everyone's saying the Kansas City defense is teams have been putting up a lot of points on them in the playoffs granted they put up more but you know the teams that that uh, uh, in the playoffs the Vikings and the uh, Packers that the Niners have played they've dominated on both sides defensively and offensively like you know the Packers did score 20 but like 18 of that was like in the you know (laughs) The fourth quarter yeah you know and the and the vikings scored 10 points so you know i think they're doing i don't know anyway that's, that's my
1: biggest concern is yeah. how both teams have red jerseys and how that's going to look on <laughs> right, <TV>. right right <laughs> yeah. right uh, but realistically and i think you know if you're not a niners fan if you're not a chiefs fan you're just looking for a good competitive close game sure i just don't want to see a blowout that's that's just not fun that's not interesting i think you know, the way that these teams match up, it should be close, it should be competitive, and it could go either way.
0: Yeah. yeah. The Chiefs do have a tendency to make mistakes yes. in games, which could call, come back to haunt them against
1: And them. I think getting behind early with a 49ers defense in the way, yeah. it's not going to be the same recipe of coming from behind and, and pulling it out big i don't think that happens if that's the case i think it needs to stay close and you know it may come down to one or two possessions
0: yeah and for me a lot of it also comes down to experience level they're both young teams but when you have quarterbacks jimmy garoppolo's been in the league a lot longer and he trained under belichick and and tom brady and you know uh, he spent a lot of time in the league pat mahomes is young and granted he doesn't show his age often but the playoffs and even in the playoffs he hasn't really But the Super Bowl is a different thing. So it'll be interesting to see if it plays any effect at all on him.
1: That's a great point. I think one of the other really compelling storylines, it's the coaches. Sure. Andy Reid has something to prove. Yeah. Getting back to the Super Bowl 15 years after doing it with Donovan McNabb and the Eagles. And then Kyle Shanahan shitting the bed when he was the offensive coordinator for the Falcons against the Patriots. Or were they up like 27 to 3? Yeah. And I know that a lot of football talking heads say it's not his fault that that happened but that's definitely an outcome that plants seeds of doubt in your head going forward and it's certainly a motivation to kind of say hey I really am you know this offensive guru that can do something special
0: with this team right right um on that note lastly I want to ask you uh what final advice would you have for those pre-WGA, which is the new term we're using, right? Instead of aspiring or up and coming, uh, pre-WGA writers, what advice would you have for those pre-WGA writers out there?
1: I think a lot of the cliche things that circulate out there are actually true. I think that there needs to be an expectation that there's a process. You have to celebrate every small win, but realize that each of those small wins might not be enough. And it's about seeing improvements, being relentless, being undeniable, just keep showing up. I think for me, seven years into the game of doing this, and I'm still not quite where I want to be, I hope that gives writers out there a sense that, you know, you do have to put in the time, you do have to put in the effort. The idea that you could be 22 and sell the OC out of USC film school, great, yeah, Josh Schwartz did that, but you shouldn't beat yourself up if that's not your path. I think there's a lot of different ways to be successful. There's a lot of different ways to kind of gauge what you're doing to become a successful writer or director. And I think you need to be supportive. You know, the the Twitter community, I I see writers being very supportive of one another. And I think that's a great thing. I do think if you are talented and you have the talent, that there's enough room for a lot of people to be successful. Just seeing the opportunities in television right now, um, you know, I do think there's a path. For a great writer, it doesn't you don't have to live in Los Angeles to be successful. And I didn't mention this before, but I do have clients that live all around the world. And so I think like, again, does great writing kind of move to the top? It does, but I think there's other ways to kind of differentiate yourself, ways that you can really show that you are a professional, you are someone that someone is confident in, in the sense that they'll send you out on meetings, set you up on calls, really believe in you as a person. And so I think it's not just about focusing on who you are as a writer, but really considering every aspect of who you are as a human being and and working to be great in every
0: area. Wow. That's great. Thank you for coming on to the podcast, Daniel. Uh, Do you have any other social media that I should know about? Uh,
1: We do have a Schemers uh, Twitter that people should follow and also check out our website. It's uh, schemers-ent.com. We're not employing the resolution model of just a black page that just says schemers (laughs) right we really champion our clients projects we have uh links to films and uh shorts uh some scripts you can really get a sense of all the projects that we're working on i I think that gavin's done a really great job of making it a resource Um, we've actually built this online library a database if you will of kind of just hollywood 101 the types of fellowships you should apply for um the different types of horror projects really just this living document that writers and directors can revisit uh to get a sense of you know what they should be doing to be undeniable and i think you know for some of our clients they've gotten something out of it It, it's been a valuable resource and it's something we continue to update uh very regularly
0: is there a submission link at all there is there is um
1: that's new um, I would say, look, could you send it to me directly? Great. That's fine. But yeah, you can go to the website. Um, you know, it's to protect yourself, to protect us, not that anything's ever happened, but just why not? Uh, it just takes a couple minutes to fill out the form uh, and it goes directly to me and I'll, I'll take a look at it. So yeah, you can use the website for that as well.
0: Well, and you would mention if somebody wanted to send it directly to you, what would the course of action be besides phone calling your phone? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, an email would be great. You can send it to daniel at
0: schemers-ent.com. And there you go. Um, so, thank you for coming on again, Daniel. It's been awesome. Um, and thank you all for listening. We do this podcast to help you, writers, in your journey. Uh, so, we do appreciate you tuning in and listening, as always. And remember: ABW, not ABC, ABW, always be writing. And we'll see you next time.